This is Ergo. Yes, it is. What's up? I'm Kiss. I am Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of Chicago for the more equitable and creative. How you doing? Chicago, the world, from this place, we're everywhere. Chicago's not the whole world? It is not the whole world. Don't tell Chicago that. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm coming out with the shade at my, anyway, <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> this is like at its worst. If you're going to talk shit, now is the time. That's where we can take it. <laughs> We have a very special guest uh, on the show this week. One of my favorite conversations we've ever had up here. Hoda Katavi is our guest. But first, a couple community announcements. On the 7th, that's today, at the Empty Bottle, Ergolum Elton, Ergolum J. Bambi, and then the Wife of Wrath on the ones and twos. It is the first show I've seen Elton headline in the city in a minute. Mm-hmm. And, of course, J. Bambi, a.k.a. Jasmine Barber, is close and dear to our hearts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so make sure you come through that. And then on Saturday the 9th is the Winter Block Party, uh, the 10th annual by YCA and Vocalo and WBZ over at the Metro, performing our Ergo alums Mother Nature, oh. MF and Mellow, oh. and Luna, Luna Day. Dope, dope. So that's going to be a great show. It is free. has a live broadcast from Vocalo. It's going to be a good time. Anything else you want to throw in there, Dame? Nah, man, just, you know, Stay warm. Happy to be alive. Yes, we are. Yeah. I'm happy to be alive for this conversation we just let's had. D- let's get to it. Here's Hoda Katsubi on Ergo. Yep, yep. Can you wiggle your ears? No. Can you wiggle your ears? No. Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> I always, my uncle, oh, not my uncle, my grandpa could, and he would do the little like, Nah, I always yeah, thought that was cool. Weird body things are like the, the like the, that's first second grade territory. Like we really first compete. Of like, yeah. oh man, like the kid could do that. Like, and it was always gross, but you still house. wanted to. Yeah, see Yeah, you'd it. be mm-hmm. at the house like practicing and like, oh, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Whenever I tried to do any of that, I always just ended up flaring my nostrils really big. That's what I was like. Well, that was one of the things that like some kids could do that others couldn't. I learned how to like kind of give them a flare. Mm. But now I'm nervous, so I don't. <laughs> But everybody can. Oh, so I can do the, the finger. Wait, hold on. Ah, uh, is that some double wow, jointed? Wow, look at that. Here? That is this intense. This one is harder, but this one I can do it. So it's you're just bending that top. Yeah, it's kind of gross. Knuckle. I'm not gonna lie. Impressive. It's not like my conversation <laughs> starter, but yeah, <laughs> it started this one. <laughs> my dad's big move is he does so it's one thumb up, one finger out, and then you switch them. Is that oh? Okay. Uh-huh. Is that something that he has he learned through practice, or he's abnormally? It's just natural, naturally talented. He has a natural skill. Since you know, coming I, out of the womb. I don't know what the years he put in on this before uh. I was born. I wasn't around. Uh. One of the big winning. That's strangely difficult. I know, right? The big winning moments for Rosie, my my girlfriend, when she met my family, was that she could do it just off jump. Wow. Oh, so she was like your. She just had that. Yeah, no, it was like she's a keeper. <laughs> Did she practice for that moment? She no, she didn't know it wow. was a thing. She be. just like walked in. She just was ready she to go. Just, she just, you know, born ready for that moment. <laughs> so he was he was just pulling out his regular yeah. go-to? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, talk about conversation starter. What are you, what are you <laughs> supposed <laughs> to say? <laughs> I'm almost sad that he didn't pull that out on me, though. Mm. Well, we're not dating, Damon, as much as it feels like it. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed over. I yeah, that's stayed. true. That's true. Have we died. I did. Damon's I mean, met, the, I parents. met the parents. I've met Damon's you, parents. Next time, do that trick, and then maybe. Yeah. No, you got no. time to work on it. Yeah, yeah no. If not, you just break not, that out with I'm, no I'm explanation. I'm not to say nothing. I'm just going to be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We are here in the studio at long last on a frigid, frigid day. It is. With a warm and wonderful person 
Oh, look at that music. Hey. Bro, bro, bro. Meow. Tweet, tweet. Yes. I'm a bird person. Excellent. Excellent. We love that. On this day, in this time, in this moment, this season, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? It's cold. It is cold. But I feel very grateful right now. Mm -hmm. Like, just like abnormally grateful. Mm. So I'm happy to be here. Thank can, you for yeah. having me. No, of course. Yes. Can you trace that? I uh, I had about a good four or five month run of like extreme gratitude. <laughs> I've I've lost it. I've lost it right <laughs> no. now. I'm struggling. I'm trying to get what back happened? to it. Um, what happened? That's a good question. I think um, in that height mm-hmm. of gratitude, I felt much more capable than I am normally, and it felt like, oh, I've figured it out. I can, take on I the can world. go. And then things have fallen into my plate and lap that like triggered some of my limitations. Mm. And then also there were like more things happening that I could control. That's so real. And then I lost a few of my, not lost, but became less consistent with a few of my healthy practices. Mm. And so there's like a feeling of overwhelmed. So what are you going to do to get back into it? That's a good question. (laughs) That's a good question. Because I know the things, right? Like just, just, uh, I think. So here's here's my the, the deep answer because I was gonna just do the surface level. It's really it. you have to get to a new level of loving acceptance of your limitations. Mm, and so I love that. And so to be be willingly ignorant, to be um, okay with being like underprepared or to not have the skills, and that being a place of love and growth instead of a place of shame and punishment Mm. uh and yeah so that's what i have to do consciously psychologically and then the results of that is like you know taking in healthier food making my smoothies getting to the gym (laughs) meditating reading writing and so it's like a balance of the Mm. two of like trying to do the activities to get to that place but also trying to find that place to get to the those activities that's so real for you what are some internal things that you're grateful for right now we'll get to the to the world things but for you internally what are you grateful for um i'm grateful for definitely community like Mm -hmm. flat out i think um like online launches are always like really hard for me or just like putting something into the world mm-hmm. is just like difficult yeah. um, because like sure you have numbers right like there's a literal number that sums up how many people are like quote unquote following your work mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. that's different than like actually seeing people like show up turn up and mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. love and support mm-hmm. like you can't put a number on that yeah. and like it's mm-hmm. so it's hard to like sometimes when you just are dealing with numbers all day or like thinking about that all day like it's it's difficult to be able to like understand actually like who who is there for you mm-hmm, you know and mm-hmm. yeah i, I mean being I, able to see that has been like really beautiful yeah i mean i'm always like amazed that anyone has ever heard us talk into a microphone like we do it every week and i know people listen but someone's like oh i've heard the show i'm like what no you how where did you find that's, it how did you hear I thought, it i feel that's like you guys crazy. have like a very dedicated readership oh, like everyone who to listens them. to you yeah, like listens to, to you guys shout, you out, to right. shout out to all 200 of you on a weekly basis i'm blushing <laughs> so for you what uh you mentioned some of the the challenges of putting things out in the world. I know we're talking to you on a very exciting week mm-hmm. where a new big thing is in the world. Mm-hmm. Tell the people what it is. Yes, it's Blue Tin Production. Hey. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been something that I've been working on for like years. Mm-hmm. It's like one of those projects that you like always sort of in the back of your mind work on. Mm-hmm. So like in that sense, like decades almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I don't know, it just feels so real and like, 
our first meeting like felt so just I don't know it's just been something that has been so close to me for so many personal and like professional reasons but now that it's like out into the world it's like I don't know a completely different feeling so can you I'm gonna give you a two-parter oh first off can you like <laughs> give the the, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to take notes I think you'll be able to um how do you describe what the the project is mm-hmm. like in the the promo website description way and then on the other end beyond that description how do you describe what it means to you ah, sure okay. those are it's a good two-parter <laughs> often at school my two-parters would be really scary because like if i don't get this first part <laughs> i'm not even that's why it's why i hated and you have a big i hate that um now i forgot the question no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> So essentially, Bluetin Production is here uh, to like challenge or address two major issues. The first is just a lack of ethical, transparent production within the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. So um, as you guys might know, like the fashion industry is like uh, utterly destructive, like absolutely um, horrifying <laughs> yeah. from like um, harvesting raw materials to processing them to produce. Like everything is like ripe with like environmental and like human rights disasters. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I've always sort of been really focused on like um, garment labor garment worker rights and like labor Mm. um just because it's like our people right like people of color in like south asia southeast asia Hmm. um across africa who are most exploited in this process Mm. um and so and also they are so systematically silenced like there's a reason why you'll never really hear about garment worker voices on teen vogue um or other like conde nas publications because like they actually have contracts with brands that work Mm -hmm. with them so like Mm -hmm. Uh, like the, this whole trope of like, oh, we want to upload, you know, like the voice of the voiceless. It, this is a whole rant about like how bullshit that is because yeah. these yeah. people are literally silenced. Like, yeah. right. um, there's all like there's so much work with even local press that like um, have retaliations for government workers who speak out. The press that speaks out, like, there's a whole system. Right. Um, and it's an enormous multi-billion-dollar global oh, industry. Definitely, yeah. yeah. And, as big as it gets. And yeah. some of these people who run these factories, um, like H and M, Indidex, who owns Zara, are like some of the richest people in the world. Yeah. Um, and so it's just absolutely ridiculous. And so that's always been something that's been really close to my heart. Um, and so yeah, and I, as someone, I actually wanted to start my own clothing line um, a few years ago, mm-hmm. and um, I get approached by brands a lot, being like, "Hey, let me sponsor you." But I have, I feel like not ridiculous high standards like a standard of just like the clothes should not be a product of violence and exploitation mm-hmm. you know but that's like so hard relatively that they, they, they <laughs> might they, they might feel that that's ridiculous like why are you like, being what? so difficult <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing like they just want a hijab they don't like as their right. model they don't yeah, want right. like any of like the baggage of what it means to be muslim and mm-hmm. wear like clothes that are ethical mm-hmm. um hmm. so so yeah so for me it, i've I keep like pushing brands to be more ethical and they're like, it's harder than you think. And I was like, screw you. If I can do it with no fashion experience, like mm-hmm. no understanding of how the industry works, then I can hold any brand I want, like to any standard. Like mm-hmm. that's like that was like my like mantra to myself essentially. So starting to work on the clothing line and seeing production um in the United States being especially like empty. Like there's really mm-hmm. nothing in the United States that is truly ethical and transparent and you can feel good about. Mm-hmm. Um and so just seeing this huge gap there, especially for people who have low minimums, meaning that they produce little amounts of clothing, mm-hmm. um, was just like like jarring and shocking. Mm-hmm. So that's 
a very long way of saying that was the first sort of issue. It was just like yeah. a lack of ethical and transparent production in the United States that is that feels good to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is basically seeing like refugees and immigrants coming to the United States and the resettlement agencies that they come through most of the time are incredibly drenched in white saviorism, mm-hmm. incredibly drenched with like patronizing, like infantilizing. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and it's it's like a disgusting space to be in, um, and you're literally treated like a child when you could like not be like these are adults, right? These are like <laughs> they've seen, like they've experienced everything, like they know mm-hmm. the world better than you, and do. not just traumatic, like just life. Yeah, like, they've lived for the same amount of years exactly. as you, yeah. or more, oftentimes yeah. more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, just seeing that process and myself, like seeing my mom when she came here, mm-hmm. um, and. She, when I was younger, she'd like sh- she'd pull out this box filled with like rejection letters after rejection hmm. letter. Um, mm. This is, of course, after the Iranian hostage crisis and after mm. the Iran Revolution in the um, early '80s. So, and she was wearing hijab, so she would get denied from job after job after getting higher on the phone or like getting uh, sent right. for an interview. So, um, just like knowing that experience and like kind of living through that and seeing that, and then also working with a lot of refugee and immigrant populations here in Chicago and like having friends who have gone through that and be like, yo, I pretended like I didn't speak English, but like that was brutal. Like the way that they talk to you and like, Hmm. so wanting to also like provide a space for primarily women Mm -hmm. um, that is like dignified um, and not like humanizing because I think that's also like a bullshit term, but like they are like brilliant and can run and manage themselves. You know, like I don't even need like, I'm not a manager. Um, so that's why this is um, sort of like a cooperative. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like a, a fashion production cooperative run completely by refugee and immigrant women here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of working to address those two major issues and works with designers and department stores nationally to produce clothing. Um, but we also simultaneously like make sure that mental health, physical health, dental care, um, like trauma-informed yoga therapy is like all like part of it too. So very like anti-capitalist holistic approach to labor. Yeah. Um, that we're making sure that like everyone sort of has before we even start production. Yo, shout out to you. Like Aww. that first and foremost. <laughs> us, us. It's the, not just us, me though. You, y'all, we're talking to you. But shout out to <laughs> shout out to squad. Shout out to the yes. team. That's, that's as phenomenal. exemplified by you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so right now. This is the week that this became like the announcement went out that this exists. Yes. Um, what feels most tangibly in place at this point? Like how much of this exists? How much is this is about to exist? Where are we in the process? Yeah. So um, we are right now. We have our online launch. So mm-hmm. we just launched our fundraiser to mm-hmm. be able to purchase machines and equipment and things like that that we need to be able to produce at an industrial level to be competitive. Um, and so once we finish that fundraiser, fingers crossed, March, so around Noruz, which is like Persian New Year's, hey. um, you know, like New Year's should not be in the middle of the dead of winter. It should be yeah. the start of spring. <laughs> which is when... Shout out to the Persians. Yeah, yeah no, they, right? they killed it. I, I <laughs> agree. Great. I agree with that. Um, so that's our ideal launch is like on the first day of spring. Hmm. Um, but... You know, we also like it's been this process has been so difficult for me just because um, I'm someone who's like very type A, like very like hyper organized, like deadlines, Mm -hmm. timelines. But when you work with people who like their schedules aren't their own. So like people are working part times Mm -hmm. at fast food chains. Mm -hmm. People are working, you know, they have kids to take care of. Um, their kids get sick um, because they don't have health insurance. They have to go to the hospital. You know, it's just like and also you can't put a timestamp on like therapy right like your mental health has to be good by March yeah. 15 you know like, <laughs> you just hurry up and, and fix it all so that we can <laughs> yeah. finally get to the yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's been like a very different process for me just being able to like 
not put timelines on things and just yeah. be like, all right, we're going to work until we're ready. Mm-hmm. And we're going to launch this whenever we feel ready. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah. We're just doing like um, speed and quality, just like runs essentially, just to like be able to get better and better and faster and faster um, until we launch. So so before we get into all the, the other stuff, for folks who are listening, how can they support the fundraiser? Uh. Um, good question. So donate. It was radio E as hell. <laughs> so where's the donation page? Where's all the info? Um, for them? You can go to launchgood.com slash bluetin production or if you go to my Insta or whatever at Horakatsubi. Follow me. Um, I'm kidding. Or at Bluetin Production. No, you're not no, kidding. kidding. <laughs> they should, they should <laughs> follow you. That is real. <laughs> um, we also have an Instagram page, so you can also do that or mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. We're going to Vogue. <laughs> oh, look at you. There we um, go. So that's the first thing. Also, if you're not able, tell your friends. But also, like, mm-hmm. just keep us in your, like, thoughts and prayers. Um, because <laughs> This is a good use of thoughts and prayers. Community. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is, a, yeah, the actual time where yeah. like, thoughts and prayers are helpful. Because this project has always sort of been, like, a community-rooted project. You mm-hmm. know, like, doctors are giving free health care. Like, dentists mm-hmm. are giving, you know, like, our space. Everything has been, like, so community-driven. Mm. Um, and for me, as someone who's religious and Muslim, like, this is for me, like, it's been, it feels like such a blessed project. And I feel mm. so grateful that, like, things have literally fallen into place when everything's going wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, mm. um, yeah, if you can't do any of the above, just keep us in your thoughts. If yeah. you're religious, pray for us. And that's yeah. all we need. So... I want to stay on this. And again, as much or as little as you feel comfortable sharing, I'm curious, what are the ways that, whether it's your faith practice or just the way you understand that relationship uh, informing beyond just this project, all the other work you do, is there a direct connection, an indirect connection? How do those live in conversation? That's a really beautiful question. Thank you for asking that. Um, Yeah. And Islam really underlines all of my work. I Mm. think um, it was basically my point of (laughs) radicalization. (laughs) <laughs> everybody else can say that with a straight face I can't say that with a straight face <laughs> that's that is hilarious, hilarious. why, why, um, why is that before the FBI and, and taps yeah, into your and NSA program. make sure you listen to the rest of the podcast <laughs> we'll explain what we mean stay tuned <laughs> after and this commercial you know, break we'll be right you know, back what's so funny is that like I'm so like I guess total vision that I didn't even hear it you were like, like deep yeah. in the radical I was like, game yeah, I was like, yeah for sure I was like oh Oh, okay. <laughs> but that's also the thing. Like, I, I think we can talk. I, I would love to talk about, like, like religion and organizing spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. talk about it. But, um, but yeah, I think that's also, like, that's such a privilege. Like, I can't go on the internet and be like, I radicalized when I was yeah. five, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so I radicalized in Oklahoma at a white high school or middle mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. Um, and because when I first started wearing hijab in sixth grade, um, it was by far the worst year of my life. Like, I was physically assaulted. My hijab was pulled off. I was called terrorist almost daily. Like, it was a very traumatic experience. Um, but that was for me like a very transformational period um, mm. because why would someone who punches you in the face and tells you to take off your hijab like why would you think that they have your best interest in mind mm. and you should take off your hijab right like <laughs> you know maybe if they like like made me a cup of tea and we had a conversation yeah, they're like, heard, you know I'm yeah. worried for you you know not you know so they've already proven that their advice is probably <laughs> not going to be great <laughs> in my best favor yeah. Yeah. It's, it's named from the fear of terror it's <laughs> yeah. like you are terrorizing me right now yeah. verbatim yeah. Yeah. so um Yeah. And I think so a lot of my and that's where I I, I learn more about politics. You know, I was like the 
there was no other like really hijabi or like person who looked like me growing up in Oklahoma. So mm. anytime that like Israel and Palestine made headlines, I was Palestinian. Whenever America invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, I was both Iraqi and Afghan. So yeah. I've experienced so many identities um, mm. that like I had to research also to be able to like uh, stand up for myself. Yeah. Um, so That's I was, I took up the Palestinian, sure, whatever, I'll be Palestinian, yeah. but like, F you, do you know what Israel is doing <laughs> yeah. to like Palestine, you know? So if you're going to give me this identity, I have to at least wow. like pay honor to they, it. They like require like, you to be the expert on everything that they're not willing to do the research on? Yeah, not even the expert, just <laughs> yeah. like, F Enough you, like, yeah. why'd you bomb 9-11 right, or like, right, right. do not, and I was like, what? This like very... It's like, I was in second grade. <laughs> <laughs> this very flat... <laughs> I was <laughs> here at the time. <laughs> I literally was in class with you. Yeah. <laughs> you were cheating off of me at that moment. <laughs> that's interesting because that's a very like um, flat, but it's it's almost like externally being forced into a diaspora. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hear you like taking that as like a point of power or like a place of resistance, which is really significant. Yeah. So so let's stay there. Like as you know, the prop the propaganda has been so strong mm-hmm. in terms of anti. Is Islam the Islamophobia of mm-hmm. the last twenty years Definitely. has been so pronounced in you know the United States and the world consciousness and the world right, um, and so you 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 use the language of radical and we talk about radical a lot radi- radicalism here a lot and you naming it as a privilege I think was really important because I think it is through this specific propaganda to extract resources from the Middle East that the like conflation of the idea of radical and extremity or extremism and like them being used as hmm. one concept as a way to really further marginalize political resistance. Uh, it's kind of my understanding. Definitely. Uh, do you, is, is that limited in any type of way or, or where does radicalism mean for you? Yeah, no, so no, no. I think, contested? yeah, you, I think you articulated that very well. And then in fact, there's actually programs right now like CVE, so Countering Violent Extremism, yeah. mm-hmm. um, that Illinois got like, Two hundred fifty thousand or four hundred fifty thousand dollar grant um, to like conduct CVE, which is basically like a, like countering violent extremism. You mm-hmm. know, so it's like this idea that Muslim something within Islam is innately violent, okay. and Muslims so it's, it's can bullshit is what they're doing. Yeah, essentially, okay. I was trying to make sure if it was like a good thing. Oh, or no, 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 it's a Anything combination that... of bullshit and let's snitch on our neighbors. <laughs> yeah, Those okay. are the two. Uh, that, yeah, of essentially, it's it, like it turns it attempts to turn Muslims into informants for their own community. Uh, so okay. anything that this, ah, anytime the state uses the word extremism or terror, it is bullshit. Okay. So like right, the right. war on terror is complete bullshit, yep, just yep. like the war on drugs. You know. Anytime anyone's saying anything is radicalizing is like bullshit mm-hmm. if the state's using it. Yep, so yep, that's yep. like a good like <laughs> a key. Right. Yeah. Um, the more you know. <laughs> Here's your little decode. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we spent a lot of time up here talking about radical meaning to the root. Mm. So I want to go back to what we were talking about. What are the ways that at its root you say it informs so much of your work? You talked about that first kind of moment of, of starting to do that digging into the, the connections between those different identities that were being placed on you. But at this point, at its root, what are the ways that your faith practice informs the things that you're mm-hmm. doing now? Definitely. So I think in a lot of ways. So for me, Islam is like a way of life and it really informs, it's like a guideline for how one should 
behave. Mm-hmm. Um, and at its core is just like an understanding of um, both social justice and just like a, a beautiful look at humanity, you know. Um, and there's just there's so many like I mean, the Quran is like written in like poetic form. So right. for me, it's just like one long poem that I think is it, it says a lot to the way that um, we practice in different ways. So it also allows for a myriad of interpretation, of course. So what I'll what I will be saying today will be my personal interpretation yeah. of like the Quran. So I obviously, yeah. Speaking for other Muslims. Shout out to you, right? Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So for example, like at its very core, you know, it. it for me, I, I see Islam as like uh, you have to respect humanity, um, mm. and if there is oppression anywhere, you know that um, that's really in a way your duty to be challenging it, mm-hmm. and so. That, for me, translates into community organizing, of course. Um, in fact, there's many ayahs of the Qur'an that basically say that, like, it's harder for a rich person to go to heaven than it is for a camel to go to that of the needle that might also be in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I, I don't know if Christian said I know we, we hold on to that one. <laughs> I, think, hold that I, one. I think that was in there. I think that's... A, that made the cut? Yeah, yeah I think that, <laughs> that's been sampled a it's few It's a bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good line. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and I, so I think Have that you ever tried to put a camel through the eye of a needle? <laughs> It's hard. It's yeah, hard. Yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> so, for example, like that also like that keeps you going when you're like broke, you know, you're like, I'm still doing like the right thing. I'm on the right path. And um, for me, there's a lot of things about also Islam that it really kind of talks about like, um, like sort of self-control and like being able to like have control over your body. So then you mm. can like kind of control and like have sort of an agency over your life and being mm-hmm. able to extend that. Mm-hmm. So for example, like we pray five times a day. Like I wake up at like before the crack of dawn to like pray and like it's one of the hardest things in the world. But if I can like force myself to wake up in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and like wash my face and pray, then like I can, you know, finish one more thing on my to-do list. Right. You know, it's like it's sort of like a self-discipline of the body that carries on to like help me be more disciplined generally. That's super you know? real. Yeah. Do you go back to bed? Oh, of course. Okay. <laughs> 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 what the hell type of question? <laughs> oh, that's a great. That's, that's my lazy brain. <laughs> like, are you just up now, or do I get to? <laughs> no, I definitely go back to okay, sleep. Man. I would like in an ideal world, I would love to stay up. Yeah. You know, if yeah. I was like that, that on top on of it. my yeah. shit. Um, so you know what my brain. Is. <laughs> So, but what what is the nap policy? <laughs> I would I would definitely you know get into spiritual practices five times a day if it came with five naps. Uh, subsequent five naps. required. Yeah. <laughs> now sleep and think about it. Yeah, exactly. Let it really wash over you. <laughs> so, in, in thinking about this, and uh, you're talking about there being this like general ethos or structure that is useful for you. Mm-hmm. Whether it's from that or anywhere else, how does aesthetics fit into that? Ooh. I know that's a broad question, but yeah. I believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think aesthetic fits in in a lot of different ways. So, like, on a very surface level, um, my interest in fashion came from politics and just my existence as, like, a hijab-wearing woman mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. South. <laughs> so, for me, like, that's how I learned about the power of fashion. You know, if I wore a scarf around my neck and not on my head, I probably would have gotten punched in the face. Mm. So, um, hmm. for me, a way that we present our bodies in public space has always been political for me, whether or not that was my decision. Um, and so that got me very interested into fashion as a form of communication and conversation and sort of 
conveying of messages. Um, so for me, that and I think fashion as a form of art, but art more broadly, is such an accessible way to talk about really complex issues, and mm-hmm. that's why I love it. You know, um, I don't have to be able to like break down exactly that, like oh, you know, in Iran, yeah, there's a dress code, but there's a normalization sort of like this legal dress. You know, like I don't have to like use all these big words to describe right. the complexities of dressing in Iran if I can just show them street style right? Um, and you can understand you're like oh wow wait everyone's sort of breaking the law huh that, I wonder if that means that like it's not enforced or like mm-hmm. everyone doesn't dress the way that we see in the West you know mm-hmm. so like little things like that that I think are makes really difficult conversations very accessible mm-hmm. um, and can show the subtlety or the not contradict, but like tensions or dialectics and how Definitely. things exist. Yeah, and we don't even have to speak the same language to be able to have that conversation. Right. And then beyond that as well, um, I think fashion also is just really powerful in, in being able to talk about women's histories in particular. Mm-hmm. So um, for anybody who's an anthropology out there, um, <laughs> so when Y'all we... Give y'all first shout out. <laughs> <laughs> Anthropology majors. <laughs> it took a while. To get it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so for example, like you look at like an archive to kind of like understand history. And in that archive is like all written text. So like text that has survived. But in a lot of countries around the world, um, as we live in a patriarchal global world, women weren't allowed to like be in public space, let alone like be able to be literate. And so a lot of women's histories are oftentimes lost. So for me, fashion also is a really important and powerful Uh, way to document women's histories because women still are wearing clothing. And historically, women have always dominated the fashion industry, Mm -hmm. whether it is production or consumption. So, um, And there's more variance through time. Definitely. Yeah. So like you can... Yeah. I was just trying to make sure it was I, was I, was I wrong. I just, yeah, no, no, I just no, made no, it no, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> Sometimes I just say shit. So you said it like with the tone so of certainty. Cool. This is why audio is we important because yeah. we looked at you and the face was like this like scrunched up like, huh. <laughs> yeah, but you I also had this up? hand movement yeah, that like yeah. verify that you know what you're talking about. You're like, you know, these little wave variants <laughs> through, you know, the temporal. Also use the word variant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but my point was yes. because there is more change as my hand continues. <laughs> it's then easier to like notice agency, notice shifts, see mm-hmm. his history happening. Definitely. Uh, you know. And particularly, I think, especially across Africa and the Middle East, um, like imperial history. Mm-hmm. So like when right. the British come in or when other Western countries come in, how dress is a way of enforcing public versus private life or allowing privilege and access into certain areas. And mm-hmm. fashion is kind of like the identifier of that, um, along with skin color, of course. But like if you're in a country like Sudan where um, there's less variance in like skin tone and you can't differentiate based on that, clothing oftentimes was like a huge way of being able to say who gets to go where. Hmm. Um, and that obviously was tied into class very much. Yeah. So for you on a personal level, how does that tie into resistance, right? You, you've, you've, you've clearly articulated like how... Um, My academic. You know, nah, but, but you know, how the aesthetic is We're academic adjacent here. And, 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 and communicates all of these like vast histories mm-hmm. within garment, within an ensemble. Uh, how has that like changed your choices as you've come into that agency, just in terms of like mm. how you get your own fits off? Definitely. So that also has changed drastically. Mm-hmm. Like when mm-hmm. I first started wearing hijab, um, I was like berated <laughs> so much that I was like, I don't care what I wear. Like I had like the worst 
outfits ever. Ooh. It was like a polo shirt. Because we're also talking about the early 2000s. That's true. But like even for the early 2000s. <laughs> wow. Let's describe it. We got okay. a polo. What else? Like a, What's a, a polo typical shirt. Fit? And my older brother, you know, he loved Abercrombie and Fitch. Uh, and it was the rage. But yeah. I couldn't shop there because I was too young. And there was naked people mm. in the store. So mm. my parents let me go inside. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Whatever. Um, so <laughs> I had Abercrombie and Fitch knockoff polos. So it'd be uh-huh. a polo with not a moose, but like a deer, like yeah. a doe. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, look, I've, I've played the Marshalls game. I know this world. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. But then since I covered my arms and I was kind of transitioning my wardrobe from like summertime, like shirts and T-shirts into like more modest outfits, um, I was like, I still love this polo look. So I went to the fabric store with my mother and picked out fabrics for my mom to sew sleeves on to the polos. Whoa. <laughs> and <laughs> can we just take a moment? Can we just take a moment of silence for poor Hoda in sixth grade? <laughs> she had no friends. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so but also but this your is like sleeve puffy game sleeves. was on another level. Oh my god, I don't even want to think about that. Um, yeah, so that was it was atrocious. <laughs> so part of me is like, I wonder if I got bullied for my clothing and not for. My <laughs> I, I, that joke came to me. I was like, I don't feel I can make it. <laughs> like he was actually just reaching for the sleeve. <laughs> I just happened to grab my scarf. Um, this whole thing's just a big misunderstanding. <laughs> you just, yeah, I'm just trying to help you tutorials. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, but then like as I grew older and kind of grew into my skin more and like found my identity or whatever, um, <laughs> I think I, and kind of understanding again fashion to be so powerful. I think for me, I've now also flipped it on its head a little bit. So um, today is not the be- oh, a little bit. I'm wearing a shirt by my friend Leila Abdul Razak. This is no colonialism, no genocide, no subtle, settler terror. I agree. Um, thank you. <laughs> shout out to Leila. Now we're doing shout, shout outs. Out, shout <laughs> out, yes. Um, shout out game is strong up here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, goes back to community. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so for me, like as someone who wears the hijab and I know that I'm going to be stared on the street, hmm. uh, I know that I'm going to be like, my body feels no longer mine in some ways. Like mm-hmm. it, I'm getting stared at and like looked at in really disgusting glares against my own will. It's like a, um, a non-consensual transaction at the end mm-hmm. of the day. So mm-hmm. if I like, why feel like that? Like why walk in the street feeling like, God, the world hates me when I can flip that and wear something in a way intentionally provocative and in doing so, then demand their stares and glares. So mm. it's like, you're staring at me because I'm making you stare at me, not mm. because you want to. Yeah. And so I'll wear a shirt that says, like, demilitarized in all caps. You know, I'll wear a shirt that says, like, revolution in Arabic. Um, So mm. just, like, things like that that, like, in a way almost fits their stereotype. But, like, mm. I also look like I'm 12. But so. It, but it's like if you're going to be looking like I'm going to make you look exactly. and actually see something beyond just the symbol that you are seeing when you see me. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it it's for me, it, I feel like I have so much more agency now. You know, like when <laughs> I, I feel so much more confident, like now that I have this like almost reverse look on like power dynamics when I'm walking in the streets. So yeah. I like and it's, it's fun. Like people literally like walk out of my way. It's <laughs> it's, it's a great feeling. Just, so. I'm just imagining just yeah, like yeah. the crowd parts. <laughs> the Red Sea. It just creates a, <laughs> creates a runway for you down the middle of the sidewalk. Essentially, yeah. yeah. And so Can we take one yeah. second to just talk about how terrible people in Chicago are at walking on sidewalks? <laughs> this is a campaign that I've been working silently on for years. You're saying they're better in New York? Yes. People in New York have an understanding. I'm from the Bronx. People in New York have an understanding of personal space recognizing that we're on an island with 8 million people, this shit is just going to be crazy. Here, people are just, wa- especially downtown. So some of them are tourists. I'm not putting this all on Chicago. But even on the train, 
this idea of just like, I know I'm in a shared space, but I have my own little world going on. I don't realize I'm standing in front of the door blocking someone. This understanding of we're all in it together. It's an individualism that I can stand for no more. (laughs) If you're on the sidewalk... Walk in a straight line. Make sure there's a pathway for someone to pass. The hero we need. Are we ready for? <laughs> Do we really deserve? <laughs> Batman was really just about like sidewalk <laughs> decorum. <laughs> yeah, that's neither here nor there. A side tangent, though, like on that, and um, that goes just goes back to identity because um, for me that's also something that's so interesting because, like here when I'm in the United States, like I know that like. Yeah, sure, everyone's going to look at me. Like, whatever I do, all Muslims do this, right? Um, In a way, it, like, sucks. And, like, there's so much pressure on you as someone who's visibly Muslim to, like, if you, like, I don't know, rob a bank, (laughs) for example. All Muslims rob banks, you know? So Mm, it's, like, there's... I feel like anything that I do is, like, under a microscope. Um, But then when I go to Iran, like, everyone looks like me. Like, I feel like I have so much, like, freedom. And, like, there's, like, a huge weight taken off my shoulder. And I do whatever the hell I want. Right. And, like, it's also just so interesting that, like, for example, here in the subway, like, I would never, like, sit on the ground, you know, because, like, oh, like, Muslims are don't sit on the ground of the subway. But in Iran, I was like, I'm tired. I'm going to sit on the ground. Yeah. You know? And it's, like, it's such a weird feeling. And I think that it goes a lot back to, like... I think minorities in like spaces where you're not, you don't have privilege too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Because every time I usually see like people, for example, who are sitting in the handicapped section or like are in their own world, I usually see they're like white men who yeah. like A are already man spreading and B like have no need to understand what it feels like to mm-hmm. like be observant of your person. Well, I mean, there's nothing that like we can do to like set our people back like that's not a conception (laughs) you know that was about to be my 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 follow-up because jennifer shout out jennifer she spends much more time downtown than i do and she feels that white people it's a white people thing oh totally so Mm -hmm. let's make the white chicagoan claim yes and it's not i'd say for the most part that Mm -hmm. is who i'm talking about all right it's like on the blue line of the brown line there are it, it, there are ways that it extends beyond that <laughs> in terms of personal space, but I think for like the most part, like edge into yeah. men a little bit okay. in general. Yeah, no, for men, sure. Men spread, but yeah. then I think partic- like an uh, emphasis on white men. Yeah, so I want to, you're talking about being <laughs> in, the, the, the difference in, in thinking about that as representative when you're in Ir- Iran and, you know, what you have done be- with the book that you sh- shouted out earlier is around street style and, and photography on that level. What are the ways that... Um, you know, having this nuanced understanding of what people are, the messages that people are sending when they walk down the street, what are some messages that you see people trying to send there that people aren't taking the time to be intentional about here? Mm. Um, Well, I mean, overall, I I mean, it's a completely different space because in Iran there is a mandatory dress code. Hmm. Um, And, like, you have to dress, both men and women have to dress in a certain way. Um, So every day before you leave the house, you have to be conscious of that. So there's already like a, a sort of extra attunement to fashion, if you will, in Iran. Plus, the Iranians are so fashionable. So <laughs> um, we're very much like uh, Iranians are, and fashion have like a long history of being uh-huh. very much intertwined, uh-huh. whether or not there was a law. Um, <laughs> actually, when I'm in Iran and my aunt is like, she always ran. She's like, I can't believe Americans leave the house in sweatpants. <laughs> what? Like savages? What? Like, how do they do that? It's, she's That is a white <laughs> Chicago thing I will stand on is... <laughs> Nobody dresses worse than white Chicagoans in winter. It is a the backward cap polo like you wore it in sixth grade. That look, the sweatpants, the sneakers, that look is unacceptable 
That is for an that is an inside look. We're literally you're doing outside. an intervention. This yeah, podcast. absolutely. Are you listening? <laughs> They're not actually. <laughs> you have a better audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so there's a this intention to it that comes whether it's from the rules or not. So what are the ways that people then make individual? Or does it come out then as people making choices within that, mm-hmm. or is it a, a collective communal choice thing? Yeah, it's obviously very complicated. Um, so for example, like I think there's a sort of romanticization of like. Uh, revolution through fashion in Iran that like Fox News loves to talk about any time anybody in Iran wears jeans with holes they're like oh my god the revolution women have freedom <laughs> it's like it's crazy I love that note that you did <laughs> that Fox News revolution note that yeah. you just <laughs> it's so true though like literally just google Fox News Iran women clothing and like so many things like Iran women defying the mullahs of like yeah. with mini skirts um, and it's like a, it's like a thing and so fashion is like super politicized especially yeah. in Iran um so not to say that like any single person who walks out on the street, like who's breaking the law is making a political statement. Um, but a lot of people like I think there is a different relationship to the law in Iran than mm. there is here. So there's a lot there's like not necessarily a lenience, but like it's sort of like ambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> H- help me process that conservative fetishization. Is that is that just like folded into the the project of like making the middle east seem like this patriarchal and antiquated place definitely but it's also just not conservative so a lot of liberals too like yeah. we want to invade afghanistan okay. for you know freedoms right, you know right, like right, they right. say that all the time right, and right, so right, right. any type of war <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um anytime it comes to women's clothing like people liberal leftist even mm-hmm. like still have a very orientalist view mm-hmm. of hijab and just women mm. in the Middle East. So um, essentially um, under like this theory called orientalism created by Edward Said. Shout out to Edward Said. He's Sam. dead. Um, so he, he's not listening <laughs> either. <laughs> but he still deserves Maybe his a spirit. shout out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my first intellectual crush. Uh, so he essentially, um, his book Orientalism, it talks about how the West looks at the East and like constructs um, the East for Western consumption. So um, fun fact, there is no such thing as a Western identity. It only came after defining what Africa and the Middle East looked like Mm -hmm, and then saying we are not that. So therefore we are this. Yeah. I mean, it's like defining whiteness and you can see the lines of that. Exactly. Yeah. So there's no such thing as like you can't be patriotic in the United States because that patriotism is a sham because that identity is a sham. So like inherently patriotism in the United States is like violent. Right. and rooted in oppression. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's a lot of obviously ideas to this theory, but just to like quickly break it down for what we're talking about. So like there's um, we take for granted in the United States that like the world runs on linear time. So like like a country must first become a democracy, then women have rights, then gay people have rights, then right. trans people, you know, so mm-hmm. it's like. Uh, we don't need to worry about women's rights yet, you know, for example, or like, oh, they're not at a democracy yet, so we don't need to worry about, like, let's not get too crazy and, like, think about. So, or, like, the idea that America is, like, the pinnacle of what is perfect. And Mm -hmm. that everyone is just, like, on their timeline. Exactly, yeah. Everyone's on their way to America. And America will always be number one. Um, But that's absolutely bullshit. So, for example, like, um, in Iran, there's, like, sort of a normalization of homosociality or, like, homosexuality there is no category of queerness because queerness was so like it wasn't just a category of identification Mm -hmm. um if you look at like paintings from like the kaja era in iran everyone there's like a sort of a gender ambiguity that was just normalized in iranian society Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until like the uk came and forced 
heterosexuality, and we can go into the minute details of that if you'd want to. We're for it, yeah. If, All right. if you've got details to give, we it's take It's actually them. a really funny story. So, oh, well, then we love um, it. I did not expect it to be funny. <laughs> yeah, that's a surprise. <laughs> it's unfortunately funny. Um, so two Brits walk into a bar. It <laughs> <laughs> um, just is that simple. Um, so essentially, um, as Iran and the UK start having in, like more and more contact during like the Qajar era, mm-hmm. um, so in Iran, there's, again, sort of this gender ambiguity. And again, fashion is like a visualization of that. So there was like everyone wore really long, loose, flowy clothing. Mm -hmm. Um, But men in the UK who are like especially parliamentarians like wore those tight ass pantaloons. So um, as the UK were coming over to Iran and like meeting with Iranian officials, um, Iranian officials would send back lustful letters to the UK parliamentary letters and be like dead ass though you know because they're like because we don't wear clothes like that in Iran like we mm. don't wear tight form fitting yeah. clothes mm. um, and so because one of the greatest threats to the patriarchy is a man becoming the object of desire so queerness um, mm. then they were like what is this it's because your women are covered that your men are all gay so like this is backwards this is problematic mm-hmm. and so um, <laughs> we are going to force Basically, like we're going to if you're modern like us, if you want us like to work with you, mm-hmm. you have to um, your men have to be like like us. Right. Like here's the clothes that you guys have to wear. You, women have to be the object of desire. So you can even see paintings during that time shifting from like ambiguous faces. Mm-hmm. So, in, for example, like there's a very famous painting called an amorous couple. It's just two people who you can't even tell gender at. Mm-hmm. based on what they're wearing or in their faces um, who are in love and like doing like lovey-dovey poses mm-hmm. and like over time then that just gets replaced with like sexualized female bodies mm-hmm. what um, is the time frame that you're kind of during the Kaja era so like 1800s okay to yeah Mm-hmm. Roughly, uh, I'm bad with dates. <laughs> but but prime co- colonialism. Yeah, yes, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, it's like colonial prime. I just like thought the, of Amazon Prime. prime. <laughs> I'm thinking of like the '90s for the Bulls. The Bulls won six championships in the '90s. A guy Who named, is the Dennis Rodman of the guy, British Empire? <laughs> a guy named Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen were out there doing the day. Oh, day. Sir Francis Drake is Jordan. the. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so they speaking they, of bad uh, fashion and labor practice, <laughs> that is Robin. No, no, I was talking Michael, about Michael Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> so there's this imposition of uh, binary. gender norms, gender binary, and fashion and, and clothing performance mm-hmm. if they want to participate in yeah in empire. Basically, the UK is modern, and Iran clearly is not because right. they're stuck in time because everyone's gay. Meanwhile, have you seen those wigs? <laughs> Those goofy ass judge wigs that they still wear out there. So, so do, yes. do you know any histories of like the resistance to that imposition? Because I'm sure that just wasn't definitely, just, like, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I mean, even still to today, like there's a lot of like homosociality in mm-hmm. Iran. So mm-hmm. essentially, like that means that like um, there's not such a like men hold hands with men. Like yeah. if you're friends, you like mm-hmm. kiss on the cheek. We like hug each other. So there's still like a lot of remnants of that today mm-hmm. in society, um, which also makes it like semi ironic that like people are like Iran hates the gays which sure the government is like explicitly Mm -hmm. anti-gay or like Um, anti-sodomy but I have friends who say that they're actually more comfortable being or performing queerness in Iran than they are in the United States Mm -hmm. because like they can cuddle with their boo on a bench 
mm-hmm. in the park and no mm-hmm. one will say anything because it's just like normal but here yeah. they're like they're identified as gay whether or not like people care like that's a different thing but like you are you know There's it's identity like, exactly yeah. yeah and I think that's just a, a larger problem in the west of just like creating like this hyper boxed identity that like you are either this or you are this and it also I, I've been talking about this a lot actually in the, it's, we were talking about it earlier today around um the the destructive limits of masculinity right so mm. some of that is, oh, is where do we begin <laughs> <laughs> but some of that is is you know rooted in sexuality and some of that is just in the comfort of physical touch between men and that being a fraternal thing not even a sexualized thing Definitely. that here we coded as sexualized so you know it's obviously a different place with a different context but i was in morocco last year and like seeing men walking down the street holding hands or the way that like men touch and so I was asking someone there, we were just talking about kind of those norms and um he, Is everyone gay? <laughs> <laughs> he, he explained it as like part of what happens when you have more clearly delineated uh separation between men and women, and it's not necessarily rooted in power, though it can be, but it's not it's it's a like more clearly defined roles in different worlds. Mm-hmm. Then within each of those there's an intimacy that is allowed for. So like there is an expectation between men that there is a comfort and physical touch because they are all kind of in relation to each other as brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so when I think about here, you know, like I was going through customs there and I saw two police officers kiss each other. Hello. And I'm like, I could travel That's this crazy. country for 30 years. I would never see two TSA agents kiss each other. Give them a Pepsi. But the limits of what, or, or the, the destructive elements mm. of limiting that physical touch and, you know, the way that men in this country show affection is like punching each other. It's these like performances of violence that those are the only touches that are acceptable. Um, and so I think that that has a really eroding impact. 100%. On, on just how men feel like they can relate to their own body, let alone other men's bodies. Definitely. And important to note is that all of the countries in the Middle East with anti-sodomy laws actually are remnants of their colonial like history. So the those laws, laws only mm. came in when UK, France, huh. Portugal, whatever, um, ruled and created that law. Interesting. So the only countries that don't, I should know that off the top of my head, um, were just weren't colonized. Hmm. Mm. That's really interesting. That makes 100% sense to me. Yeah. So... I'm trying to figure out where... Oh, yeah, this went back to our linear time thing. Wow, what a... <laughs> linear time, <laughs> time doesn't is, exist. Yeah, Going back. <laughs> so on that thread of, like, Iran being historically always queer, like, the idea now that, like, oh, Iran needs to progress to become more like America, to become more queer-friendly is, like... Ridiculous, ridiculous because yeah. historically Iran was queer. Iran needs to go back to its own roots. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's, like, one... For example, example of like the way that like uh, Orientalism reframes the East mm-hmm. is like it decontextualizes this and like snips it off of it, like its larger context of whether it's American intervention, colonialism or whatever. But specifically when it comes to fashion, the hijab in particular is always seen as like this oppressive backwards force. So right. um, the closer that you look like to a Western subject, you're mm-hmm. on the side where it's like liberation and freedom, hooray, and America and modernity. And the closer you are to like looking like an Islamic or like under whatever people think looks like an Islamic dress code or whatever, the closer you are to like backwardsness, mm-hmm. um, oppression. Right. And it's a binary. So it's literally like you can just move your little figure like one way or another based on how you dress. But that's an incredibly patriarchal view of also women's rights. So like 
if women dress in miniskirts, but they have no access to education, healthcare, you know, the laws are all incredibly patriarchal. How are they free? Um, But also vice versa. So like if you're forced to wear hijab, but like women are like graduating university more than men or like they're more literate then Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. we have to think about freedom as more holistic than just the way that people dress, although it's still very important. Right. Right. And that in both contexts, the way that the patriarchal structures are restricting women, like, it's not like one has solved that issue, exactly. right? Or has yeah, figured take that France, out. for example, like right. forced like removal of hijabs, um, right. which Iran also has a history of too. When the United States installed like a puppet um, mm. king in Iran, right. there was actually a period of forced hijab removal, mm. where like the, you were not allowed to wear a hijab or you weren't allowed to get government jobs and all this stuff. Hmm. And then you always see like it'll make every few months the rounds on social media where. They're like, well, you know, look at what Iran looked like in 1955 and where, what it looks like now. And not, again, like, it is this very selective context being put on it. Definitely. As opposed when, to understanding that moment. The same way we do here. You know, we mm-hmm. talk about, like, picket fence 50s and, like, the suburbanization <laughs> outside of the context of redlining mm-hmm. and coming out of World War II and all that. Definitely, yeah. Or, like, for example, like, when we, especially when we look at those images of women wearing miniskirts in Iran or Afghanistan or wherever – um, we don't really realize, like, actually, like, those are mostly elite women, right? So right. it's, like, women who were, like, upper class and had the ability to afford clothes like that when right. the majority of women still wore hijab. Like, they were, you know, like, right. um, it wasn't necessarily, like, it was just, like, one or the other. And it just goes yeah. back to, like, I feel like, which is a very Western concept of, like, who is the enemy? Who is good? And, like, let's just support. Everything's, like, black and white. You know, yeah. like, everything's in a neat box of either identity or, like, goodness or badness. So we we've been really kind of circling and going different directions, which I love. I want to get back to like you in this moment Mm -hmm. and beyond just the specifics of the new project, but in general, what feels exciting to you about the way you're reimagining the sphere that you're working in? Like, like, like what hasn't happened yet? You're like, Oh, this is going to be really cool. Once I, or we figure out how to make this thing. Mm. Um, I guess I would hesitate to say that, something hasn't happened yet that will be, like, the first of something. Okay. Just because that goes back to, like, visibility issues. Yeah. Um, but I do think that um, this, I'm hoping, are you talking about Bluetin production? I'm just saying in general, in general, in the in the world, we can we can stay on that. It's a it's a broad question, again. Yeah. Um, I, I think that being able to make fashion take a second to slow down, I think is just really, really important and needed right hmm. now. Um, and also just allowing a way for people to like feel more agency or like realize their agency. I think Mm -hmm. through um, whether it's like reversing stairs, for example, on the streets to just like limiting their production um, and really working on like a global scale to like work with garment workers to like demand better rights. And I I think there is a shift right now happening in the fashion industry toward like sustainable um, ethical production, a little bit more like slower, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's like hard as hell. And some of it is real saviory. Oh, 100%. The whole fair trade industry is, like, white people playing, like, white savior. Hmm. But but to that sp- specifically, I, I, I really want to know um, what the co-op model looks like and how that works for Blue Tin. Because for me, you know, I, I see corporate organization. And when I say that, I mean then the state, then, like, f- you know, free market enterprise, uh, nonprofit uh a lot of religious institutions and academia, I think, are all structured as corporations, right? Mm-hmm. And I view the co-op model as, like, the only tangible physical 
alternative we have to that. But beyond that, I don't really know how to like talk about it besides the concept of workers owning their labor and being a part of collective decision making. Uh, and so for you, that is y- y'all are doing it. What does the co-op mean? How does that function? Mm. How is that working? Something I want to definitely go deeper on here. Yeah, for sure. So I think the the co-op developing it has been such a challenge just because all of us have had to unlearn hierarchy mm-hmm. and like really like l- relearn like everyone has a say and like how things move forward. Even like, for example, on the first day, there's already going to be a bit of a power dynamic that I specifically have to like work on like being very conscious of because I'm organizing it. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. so like I brought people together. And so being able to like even though they are here, they still get as much say as I do in everything or even more. Um, I think it's been a challenge, but I think it's been really beautiful seeing that evolve over time. So, for example, on the first day, um, one of the members was like sitting in a seat that was like clearly uncomfortable at the sewing machine. And I was like, oh, like, how is that chair? Like, do you want us to get a new chair? She's like, mm, it's fine. I was like, no, no, no. How do you like the chair? Like, actually, she's like, no, it's fine. It's like, do you like the chair? She's like, I guess it's a little uncomfortable. I was like, thank you. <laughs> and so it like started like that, being like essentially forcing people to like, like not play like nice, essentially, mm-hmm, and be like, right. if you want something, if you need something and now I don't know three four months later she's like can we have a mini fridge I'm like I don't want to walk all the way down the hall to the other fridge (laughs) (laughs) and for me I think that's like beautiful and I'm like really happy that like um, all the members are now feeling a sense of agency over this space um where the, it was difficult to kind of like find that initially. Yeah. Um, and so everything from like developing bylaws together, which obviously I think is like one of the most important things because how can I like set up even hours, for example, if we're going to be working, if I don't have kids, like I don't have like a million things to be doing. I'm not working on another part-time job. So like if I, like even if you want to like look at it from like a corporate perspective, if you want your quote unquote employees to be the happiest, like, let them do what fits in their schedule best, right. you know, like meet their needs. <laughs> so, um, but who better knows their needs than themselves? So if, like, for example, our first meeting, we were just talking about, all right, like how are your kids' teeth? Like, do you need dental care right now? Is that urgent? Like, have you had mental health before? Like, are you interested in mental, you know, just like going through like everything, like mm-hmm. where are you holistically? And like, how can we make sure that we're like helping as many or like targeting as many of your needs as possible yeah. for you to feel like happy and healthy? And like, this isn't like a burden, you know, like there's not something on your mind while you're working it's mm-hmm. yeah. so like even if we were a capitalist like it would still be in our favor to do this because yeah. they're they'll be even more productive or yeah. whatever yeah how do you shape the container for the people in it rather than shaping them to fit the container exactly yeah can we do a, a hard pivot to a pin that we put in earlier yes that i actually wrote down which One i never like do many pivots <laughs> we've been pivoting yeah no no, no. i feel like i'm just like yeah. i got a nice pivot going but <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier being interested in in talking about faith and religion in relationship to organizing. (laughs) Mm. And it's something that I have thought, for my own context, a lot about and have not talked about a lot. So what was it in that that stood out as something that you've been thinking about? And where are the concepts or tensions that are sticking out for you? Mm. Can I hear yours first? Oh, sure. Um, So I'm Jewish. And for a long time in the work that I was doing, that was the piece of how I understand myself that felt most removed or devoid from being part of the conversation of how I was understanding my place in the world. Um, And so what I was doing was kind of defining myself and my relationship to the world through the, the cultures and identities that I was adjacent to and being like out of like a sense of shared responsibility because I've been around this. I want to participate. Um, And so the last 
I don't know, year and a half, two years has been understanding like what are the things in my own lineage and and for me that's very connected to my faith practice that um, serve as not just fuel but kind of uh, – yeah, framework to understand why I do the things that I do and why I view the world the way that I do. So for me, in Judaism, there's this concept of tikkun olam, which is repairing the breach. So the world has these splits, and that's where harm and violence happens. And our role is to repair those breaches. Hmm. And that is not a, like, fix them, but it's, like, be reparative. Like, w- what does it take to restore that? Um, so that's just one that's piece. Beautiful. And then just also in relationship to just having a better sense of how, like as an identity group that relates to other things. So that's, mm-hmm. there's the political, but then there's also the, the kind of spiritual and faith-based piece of it. Yeah, that's the short answer. Uh, what about for you? Do you have a similar yeah, do you have, Hmm. That's interesting. I love Be, that you flipped this on us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, I'm about to go in, so I yeah, just want to yeah. like Cause, cause I, <laughs> hear what I'm working I, with I want to make more... <laughs> space for us to engage the really important histories and legacies of spiritual and and faith-based tradition i think over the last year um it has been a reconnecting so i grew up you know christian and you know a a pretty muslim a christian and jew yeah pretty moderate uh, this is the future a (laughs) A pretty pretty you know moderate like black christian tradition but like wasn't wasn't hardcore but was a consistent interaction in my life probably around, around by 18, 19, <laughs> grew to reject it pretty heavily. And then I think that, that led me to learning and studying, you know, the, the big three Abrahamic traditions and the, the histories as kind of like one piece. Mm. I, I was at a place of a bad taste in my mouth, but I, I always wanted to be respectful and never was um, very vocal about it. So I felt like I was hiding or silent about it. I think I've now been able to reconnect to the real humanity that is intended within all of the traditions. Mm -hmm. And I think figuring out how to use some of those entry points as a way to talk about a larger collective. But I think as an institution overall, I am really excited. Or here, let me, let me even be more funky. So um, in the last probably like year, (laughs) nine months, starting to learn about more African traditions that predate, mm. you know, Christianity and Islam, at least in the institutional form. Definitely. Um, and I am, I am fond of that just like historically. Uh, but for me, what I told my partner, she was like getting into the books is uh, what I realize I need is a container or a space that understands that this is something that human beings have had agency in creating. And that the project is not done. And so Mm. for me to be comfortable in a religious space, it would be to be creating our religion, Mm. right? Instead of strictly conserving what came before us. So not discarding what came before us, but using it as a power of this was a cultural context that was observing their environment and created code, created story, created narrative, created understanding. And it is not infallible. It is the beauty of it is that it is fallible, and it has never been static either. Right, it has always been evolving and changing. And 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 it is when we institute in a way that all right, it's done. The book is closed. Mm -hmm. That's where I get weary, and I am looking for a tradition that wants to continue writing the story. Hmm. Mm. And in all three Mm -hmm. of these, there are traditions of wrestling with it. Right, Mm -hmm. like any time that someone's saying this is what the world is, 
don't question it. Like there are also examples of that, but. But I think if you also go like deep enough to actually like in each of the three faiths, mm-hmm. like yeah. I think it challenges people who blindly follow too. Absolutely, you know, like Absolutely. the first like commandment I guess for Muslims as we understand it is like read, hmm. you know, like educate yourself, mm-hmm. ask questions, yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's I think and that's sort of like the draw for me, and I I think I agree definitely with you, Damon, in that like if it if something feels like it's closed, done, like shipped away, like that that doesn't feel like why like why do I need to practice that right now mm-hmm. yeah. you know so mm-hmm. I I definitely feel that and I think that's also part of the reason why I'm drawn to Islam mm-hmm. I'm sure I was born in it conveniently <laughs> enough <laughs> but I did go through um, obviously a period of like intense questioning growing up in Oklahoma I've read um, parts of the Torah I've read the Bible mm-hmm. um, and I think for me I, yeah I, maybe I'll jump into the I guess like where I've seen like part of the reason actually why I've stepped back a little bit from mm-hmm. Chicago community organizing. Yeah. Um, so I've actually been planning on writing this. Yeah. For minutes. It's this much like easier to just talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to my rant. But I do, I like, I've felt very deeply that in a lot of spaces that I've been in in varying levels of like radicalness, obviously, um, that kind of going back to what we were talking about, about the sort of like binary between oppression and freedom, I think when it comes into leftist spaces, there's like an additional like line there. And that is like um, a certain performance of the body in public space um, or on social media, that that is the pinnacle of freedom. So if Hmm. you are a woman and you are nude on social media, Mm -hmm. that now you're free. Um, You know, there's like a very certain form of feminism um, that again sort of is like i think in a is like comes from a very like secular western perspective on mm-hmm. bodies that is all in a way like feels almost enforced in a lot of like public huh. space so like i've felt in a lot of leftist organizing spaces that like i still am not truly free yet until i've taken i've taken a step out of religion and i feel mm-hmm. like a lot of people that i've organized with have seen religion as like of an oppressive force that like oh, she's like, she'll work on that. You know, like, she'll get there. I've actually had somebody tell me that, like, Hoda, I know you're gay. You're just not admitting it because your religion's not letting you. Mm. And this is somebody in an organizing space. Bro, you think you have this all figured out? (laughs) You think you have all the answers for what being free is? And we're just just all catching up? And that's the thing. Did you have a response in that moment? My jaw just dropped. I thought that was the most offensive thing, like, anyone could ever tell me that, like, they know my own like sexual identity better yeah. than me, and like my choice of like understanding of the way that the world works is hindering me from making that choice. Like yeah. I thought it was like, yeah, it, it was. I thought it was a very disgusting. Thing and to not say. only knowing your sexuality, also knowing what you need to be doing to get free. Or also that like the religion is against like queerness, which, right. which Islam is not against Islam. queerness. You right. know, so it's like you obviously have no idea about who I am, about my faith, about anything. And I think so. Like this I, is about you. Yeah, this is, you're hitting on me. That's what this is. <laughs> this is a bad, a bad attempt to flirt. <laughs> Loki, that might have been. <laughs> that goes back to the billion because of hijab or outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, I, I mean, I've, I've experienced things like that, like similar to that, time after time again. Also hmm. in organizing spaces, and that like, my religion was seen as like a sort of a barrier for me to like feel true liberation, and hmm. that has always been very like 
problematic for me. Um, or that I think people have, I've seen spaces that have, have such an overemphasis on like we're spiritual, not religious, but what they're taking from spirituality is from organized religion. Right. So a lot of spirituality. Yeah, I hate that cop like, out. I hate You can't just say you're out. spiritual, not religious, but still take from organized religion. Like saying that you're religious. I say creator like, instead of God. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> but I on use your religion. No. The creator did this for me. Like, it's like, all right. I know, and it's so frustrating because, like, it like it feels like a burden to be religious in organizing mm. spaces, or it mm. feels like it's a bad word to say mm. that you're like religious, yeah. or like I I have a religion, you know, yeah. like that's like no one says that in organizing spaces, mm. um, and so it's been re- like more and more difficult for me to like feel like kind of as you mentioned like almost my full self yeah and i feel like i've negotiating um for example like during ramadan we had meetings at like a bar for one organization that i was a part of like during ramadan like when we're supposed to abstain from anything but also at a bar where there was mostly only pork options i was like they're like Mm. i think we do an over no i think we we're very accessible and i think that's very important but like not to people who are religious like i think it's we're seen as like a burden that is like you need to deal with it's it. It's outdated, basically. Exactly. So the way that I addressed that was I started working in Jewish organizing spaces. Have mm. you done any collective work with other people who are Muslim in that same way? And did that help mediate any of that, if you did? Um, so that also is difficult because yeah. it's difficult to call yourself radical and Muslim. So And mm. that goes back to our earlier conversation. Yeah. Mm. And for me, there are not, uh, there's not a space that I've seen if there is, please contact me. That's like <laughs> the radical level of politics, like abolitionist politics mm. of a group of Muslims who like primarily are like femme or women. Mm. And that doesn't For exist sure. in Chicago. I tried to start it, but every person who joined was just sober over like their their capacity was so filled doing yeah. solidarity work that we couldn't actually organize against <laughs> things like surveillance members, yeah. or like CVE right. um, or things like that. So mm. for example, we have a CVE campaign, but right now it's like mostly people who are working on it are like non-Muslim and like white. Yeah. Um, mm. Have you chilled with any of the Iman people? Oh, Iman's great. And I, but not primarily feel. Yeah, but they it, do a little less organizing though. <laughs> they do. Yeah, they do different. Different types of organizing, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So less like more anti, like yeah, like political policy. state organizing, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that's kind of the organizing that I'm interested in. But that is a very specific um, limitation, just in terms of language. To circle back to the idea of radicality, and so are there, you know, the same way we talk about any concept or any language getting co-opted. Are there other words that, for you, out of necessity, you've kind of found serve the same role if if you know that externally you can't like there is that limitation do you know what i mean it's no. kind of a vague question <laughs> yeah it didn't make any sense Wait, like instead of calling myself radical what do i call myself is that what you yeah mean? or do you continue like what how do you hmm. mediate that choice yeah i actually used to put like on my instagram and twitter bio like radical fashion blogger for the longest time but mm-hmm. my mom like <laughs> frantically called her <laughs> <laughs> like what are you doing you're gonna get us all in trouble <laughs> yeah, moms will do yeah, that <laughs> i know yeah so i took it off <laughs> um but cuz she's also like right in some sense um and that why add extra like yeah. lights right. on you just to like like mess with maybe people on the streets, but like that's not like why that's not yeah. worth it, yeah. you know. So, right. now, and the work can still be what the work is without that. Exactly. That, yeah. You so know, handle. I've been kind of like switching between like sh- should I try to re like take over the word and like make, but I was yeah. like ah, meh, like it's not. I don't know. I think that's like there's not enough 
that would that would yeah. that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, and at the same, um, at the end of the day, the work is what is yeah. proves it either. Like it doesn't exactly, have to be yeah. Label. Or yeah. like for example, like I think that right now there is a movement to kind of like make the term radicalized um, or like radical or extremist um, terrorist specifically actually kind of more applicable to different people that aren't Muslim. So mm-hmm. like. We're trying, like a lot of people, especially in leftist spaces. Actually, they're yeah. like, "Let's call white people terrorists too," but like that doesn't do anything. That doesn't help. Like that doesn't right. take away like the harm that terror would cause a Muslim person than it would cause a white person. Yeah. You right. know, like, um, or like the contagiousness of like if you are a Muslim and you call someone who has been labeled by a terrorist, like now you are in conversation with terrorists. You know, <laughs> and so I yeah I think there's like definitely a problem for trying to like make terms that are specifically like in a way racially applied to a group of people, like more broad-based when that doesn't actually fix the structural. Yeah, I had a, uh, what's his name? Dang, I can't forget his name already. Dylan Roof. I had issues mm. as obviously that was such a, a tragedy, but like the push of why is this not being named as terrorism when mm. I agree that it, it is a artificial construct that has been used for, for violent domination. And I think like searching to uphold it uh, in that moment was not, truly restorative and actually like empowers the state more because mm-hmm. um, the more people they can label as terrorists the more the more budget they can have to it the and more gonna, restriction they're they going to use it in an inequitable way yeah and they also get more funding to be right. able like it's yeah. more like legitimate now we have yeah. more terrorist threats but then right. again all the money will get directed toward like and like Muslims so, yeah right. so whoo man I'm still I'm still like tripped out on the, the religion conversation because yeah it, it, the, the mm-hmm. distinction that I felt kind of like it was sitting with me in terms of my own journey with it, especially in terms of publicly because of the distinction of of the history of anti-blackness within Christianity. And so like, you know, for me, religion being something I've learned, you know, it's obviously had its benefits for, for community in a lot of ways, but the more history I learn, the more it feels like an imposed injury mm. as opposed to like an indigenous tradition that yeah. grounds um, and just like how that distinction moves. And even in black freedom work, how central the church has been and how that's been a site for contestation, but also a site for, you know, infiltration from state power mm. or just like corporate power to use the church as like a um, a destabilizing or a silencer or a, a go-between that is just really interesting as y'all are coming in from like a more global context. Yeah, there's a particularity mm-hmm. to this yeah. experience you're describing that I think there is no, you know, there is there is no parallel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I definitely think that's like, it's complicated and it's mm-hmm. messy. But I don't, yeah. But I think it's almost like all the more reason to like explore that. Yeah. Hmm. For me, at least. Like, I like complexity. <laughs> yeah. As we've seen. <laughs> before we get out of here, we've we've started this new little, new little strategy here where before we get out of here, we've been asking, are there any like strands or themes or ideas that came up that you want to like elaborate on or circle back to or like what stuck with you from our conversation so far? Um... I don't know, a lot of things. Yeah. I think you guys asked really great questions. Oh, thank you uh, for thank that. You. They were like very like thoughtful and like complex, but like you know what you're talking about. Hmm. It's not just like, so like, what's fashion? <laughs> what's the, you've done a lot of interviews. What's the question that you get asked the most that you hate the most? Does Iran have nuclear weapons? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, let me check. <laughs> <laughs> we just call up Khamenei uh, right now. Um, the supreme leader. Yeah, um... <laughs> I, I I think it depends on the space. Obviously, I get more questions on panels that are really frustrating. Hmm. Um, but I I've now like I haven't gotten those questions because I very upfrontly like 
when I'm doing a talk, I say this is what this conversation is about and what it's not about. And so, like, I haven't had many dumb questions as much. Um, That's and, beautiful. What do you say it isn't and is about? You don't have to get the whole yeah, show, but, yeah. like, are there particular things that you've been able to uh, deflect or deflate? So, usually before, like, I – so. When I give a talk now, I usually will say, like, this is not a theological conversation. Like, I'm not here. Like, I'm not a theological expert, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, if you yeah. want to ask me my personal view about religion, we can do so after. It has nothing to do with my presentation. Um, because I used to get all the time, why do you wear a hijab? You know, yeah. like, that's such a personal question. Yeah. Like, that's uh, like that's my relationship with my faith. And that's something that's, like, incredibly, like, close to, like, my heart. And that changes yeah. all the time. You know, like, right. why I wear it today may not be why I wear it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but I think that Muslims are always kind of asked to, like, present all of their insides up into the open. And, like, mm-hmm. their relationship that's so sacred with, like, um, something that's bigger is, like, supposed to be sort of, like, severed and, like, shown to people to prove that you're, like, you're not right. oppressed. You're den- <laughs> and you're, like, denouncing the bad part. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, like... I I I hate I hate those questions. So like yeah. I I also like refuse to answer them if they do come up. So if they still get asked, I'm like I, none of your business. <laughs> that's um, beautiful. And who cares? Like if you think I'm a press, deal with it. You know, like that's, so again, what? that's your shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you didn't care before. <laughs> Back then, <laughs> is that is that really your thing? Oppression? You really, you really. Yeah, I, I have about some it. work for you to do. <laughs> I can plug you into some movement. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I think being very clear about like what a conversation. But like I don't have to have that conversation with you guys because like I know you guys and uh, like I trust. So yeah, we on, on, it's it's a similar question, but the same kind of like thread of, of we're, we're trying to get our checkout game stronger up here. So uh, we're gonna let's go around and say like, what's one thing you're thinking or feeling, either or or both? Hmm. I'll go for it. I'm just thinking about what you were saying about in organizing spaces, feeling that as a um like as a limitation of the space and as an imposition that people were putting on you and thinking about what are some pathways around and through that. And I don't have any answers, but I think it's a really important conversation. How about either of you? Uh, for me, I'm feeling what, you know, what I just talked about. I'm still that, that pull, uh, specifically like within black resistance spaces around faith and religion and institution, uh, not really, I have so many thoughts and have, mm. you know, done so much writing and and developing on it to like one day be in a position to talk about it. But like right now in the immediate, there's not really like a healthy space because it mm. is so traumatic. So it's either people who are like kind of just see what I see and the things that like I was being careful to like not fully say, but kind of say it <laughs> like we could have that conversation, but like in struggle. Um <laughs> You know, because it's so sensitive. Because it either is seen as so such an injury, or so central uh, to your identity and to you know life. So that is a pool I'm figuring out of how, you know when does that conversation happen more. Some of it happened just now, uh, and then I'm thinking uh, about the way, especially when you talked about how we um, obtusely place this lens of like homophobia on on the East and how that is incorrect. And how it is funneled through our idea of the nation state, mm. which is how it works now, you know, a, a Western construct. And so, you know, how it is post-colonial. And so the the idea of if a nation state has a policy, we then place that on the people, even mm. if that is counter or in contradiction with the culture. Uh, and so that that is a thought yeah. thread for me. What, what are you thinking and or feeling? Feeling great. <laughs> feeling great, feeling good. Yeah, yeah. Swamp mush is starting to get a little humid. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I think I'm also thinking a lot about, I think, what you named, Damon, about like sort of the relationship with like the church and spirituality and like black communities in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really something for me that's like really fascinating too. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot written about it in Islam, at least. I don't know as much about, like, the mm. church. Mm. Um, like, for example, my checkout is, like, a thread. No, <laughs> that's how we do. Then um, we are the longest of the long form. <laughs> we'll, we'll roll with you. Um, like, the first person to ever, like, sing, I guess, the call to prayer was, like, a black man. Mm. Um, so, like, within Islam, I think blackness is also almost very innate. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, even though, like, right now, obviously, there's so much anti-blackness in the Muslim community. <laughs> um, but, like, I You're think... You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think also just, It's a just bigger like, club. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Um, yeah. But, I mean, thinking a lot also about, like, where religion originated and, like, sure, it, it may seem like it's, like in the Middle East, but, Mm -hmm. like, the Middle East is also, like, black. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the Middle East is also, like, brown. Mm -hmm. It's just not white. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so I I think that just makes me think a lot more, both respect to, like, Christianity and, like, but also in Islam, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I'm grateful for you guys. I'm grateful for you, too. Thank you. Also, I just want to give a shout-out to all my non-Abrahamic traditions out there. (laughs) (laughs) We rock with you, too. We see you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just suffer through this <laughs> conversation. Like, oh God! <laughs> Here they go again. Oh, <laughs> where's our Taoist podcast? Let's go. Uh, Oda, where can uh, where can people find you in the ways you want to be found? Um, oh, I like the way that the question is framed. I'm on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good place to be found. Um, Twitter and Instagram at Hoda Kasibi. Bluetin Production on Instagram. Cool. Juju Azad. J-O-O-J-O-O-A-Z-A-D.com is where I do all my writing. Uh, Make that donation, folks. Yes. Donate today. Please pledge to keep... (laughs) (laughs) We'll send you... (laughs) We're going to send you a mug. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming through and chopping it up with us. Thank you. And we'll be back next week with another person reshaping the culture of our city for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Hello friends, it's Kiss here. I've recently been trying to step my fashion game up and and the look that I've kind of settled on is Spy on his day off. So like they got the turtleneck, I got like the nice coat over it, the leather gloves, like I spent all day like fighting the KGB but I'm taking the afternoon off. If that's the look that you've got going on or you just want to be in a spy inspired themed restaurant, The Safe House inspires you to experience Chicago's number one spy-themed bar and restaurant located in the heart of River North. Your next late-night mission should include a stop at the Safe House. You can sip on giant shareable cocktails, dance the night away to our live DJ, and exit through the top-secret laser maze. Name Chicago's most Instagrammable restaurant. That's an interesting Yelp category. Don't miss out on the fun every Friday and Saturday night. For more info, visit safehousechicago.com.